www.wixfm.org and click on store or donate. Thank you so much for supporting WHIV. We are not a, a radio station with a mission. We are a mission with a radio station. And with that, Resistance Radio starts right now. When machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. George Bush doesn't care about black people. They have a Black History Month, but we don't have a White History Month. Well, all we've ever been taught is white history. If it was not for the love and respect shown to me by black women, those right-wing, ultra-conservative, alt-right haters, they would have me believe I'm too black, I'm too confrontational, I'm too tough, and I'm too disrespectful of them. But now, I know I'm simply a strong black We're in a time where corporations are treated like people and people are treated like things. They promote legislation that attacks voting rights, the poor, LGBT citizens, the immigrant community, and civil rights that are lewd, mean-spirited, and fundamentally contrary to what our democracy is supposed to be about. What is bad is not what they are doing what would be bad is for us not to fight back hey ho let's go this is 102.3 whiv lp fm in new orleans it is a pleasure to be here you are listening to resistance radio we are also streaming live on 1230 a.m wbok thank you for everybody at wbok to make that stream possible my name is mark allendary and as always it's a pleasure to have with me looking very very relaxed on his apparently his day off of work uh without wearing a tie and wearing a a t-shirt of all that Star Wars t-shirt. A Star Wars t-shirt. Really, uh, Kenny Francis, one of my closest friends and somebody who I'm proud to say is probably, if not the smartest political mind in the state of Louisiana, certainly in this room. Well, I don't know. Maybe you have a smart political mind, too. She does. She's a great mind. Uh, Kenny Francis, thank you for appearing on WHIV. Hey, y'all. I'm excited for another week of Resistance Radio. Um, as always, I'm going to remind folks that you can find this episode and all episodes of our show by going to WHIVFM.org or looking up wherever you find your podcast. So that could be on iTunes, that could be on Google Play. We're on Spotify now, which is where I listen to the show. Um, so you can find this episode and all the other episodes. We're excited about the conversation this week. We have a couple of things on the docket. And like Mark Allen said, it, for most of us, it was a day off today. I was enjoying it. It's been, a, to be honest, it's been a, it's a weird couple of days. I'm feeling very like emotionally drained. Yes. There's been a lot of like 
change happening for me. Like I moved this weekend and had to deal with all of that and saying goodbye to my house. Um, a couple of like of like people I'm close to are like leaving forever. Um, shout out to my my dear former roommate Matt, who is now going to be the entertainment editor for the L.A. Freaking Times. Yeah, uh, how amazing that he, is that? that? He, you know, move, driving across the country in a U-Haul at the moment. So I know we usually have a couple things that we start the show with, but we actually have a very special guest on air with us right now, and so I just want to jump to her, and then uh, Kenny and I will get back to the regular resistance uh, radio programming that you guys are used to. The regular yeah. scheduled programming. It's an <laughs> honor and pleasure to have Dr. Laura Cheever, who is a physician and associate administrator for the HIV AIDS Bureau at the Health Resources and Service Administration. Uh, Ms. Uh, Dr. Cheever, are you, are you on air? Do we have you? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? It's welcome back to WHIV. Thank you so much. We can hear you great. I know that May is Hepatitis Awareness Month, uh, and I know that there's been a, a, a lot that's happening, at least in our state, with respect to, uh, to what's happening uh, with uh, Hepatitis C. But uh, Dr. Cheever, it's really, again, welcome back to WHIV, and maybe talk to us a bit about hepatitis and the May being Hepatitis Awareness Month, and specifically about Hepatitis C as well. Great, yeah. So um, uh, viral hepatitis, There, that means there's a virus that causes inflammation of the liver, and there are three main kinds. Hepatitis A, which is mainly foodborne, like a short, limited-duration hepatitis, and there's hepatitis B and C that both become chronic infections in many people. Um, and in uh, the United States, for hepatitis C, it's a serious problem. We have about uh, 3.5 million people infected with hepatitis C, and uh, about only about half know that they're living with the infection. So um, not very many people know they're living with hepatitis C, and the problem is that for people with hepatitis C, some of them go on to develop severe liver disease, fibrosis and cirrhosis, and can end up dying of liver disease or liver cancer. Um, and with hepatitis C, as you were alluding to, there is a cure. Uh, we have multiple medications that can cure hepatitis C for a lot of people. It's one pill once a day uh, for 8 to 24 weeks, depending on what type of hepatitis you have and what treatment you're using. So um, so we, we, have, uh, we have access to great medication, and you in Louisiana are doing really interesting things around that. Thank you so much. Before we get into the Louisiana plan, I just real quickly wanted to talk about uh, ending – well, I, I yeah, I guess what I um, – uh, yeah, let, I guess let's talk about uh, what's happening in Louisiana. I'm sorry, I just got missed. I got misdirected for a quick second. So, what we're doing in Louisiana, Dr. Rebecca Gee, who is our health secretary, actually just went uh, to Gilead, one of the manufacturers that that make the medications uh, uh, for hepatitis C. In this case, this is a medication called Evclusa, and what Evclusa does is that it covers all the various genotypes uh, that uh, uh, that there are for Hep C. So, Hep C comes in many different flavors. Um, uh, it also has uh, coverage whether or not an individual has cirrhosis or not. And so it's really kind of was the best drug uh, to be used in terms of ending a uh, or starting a statewide uh, uh, approach toward ending the hep C epidemic uh, in Louisiana. And, and Dr. Chief, I was just wondering if you could just kind of walk us a bit through some of that as well. Yes, so um, in terms of what you want me to talk about, what you all are doing in Louisiana. Sure, that would be great. Specifically, that would be great. So this is what I know is really what I've uh, talked a little bit to state officials about, but mainly just read the media, which is that um, you all are really uh, doing something very innovative, and that's doing a subscription plan where the states agreed to pay uh, one drug maker, it's going to be Gilead, a set amount of money, uh, and uh, the state will have a 
the ability to treat as many patients as they can in their Medicaid program and the Department of Corrections program over a period of five years. So it's kind of, they call it the Netflix model. You know, you pay a set price of access to this, and then you can use it as much as you want. So um, the, this is, it's very exciting for us because across the country, many Medi- uh, Medicaid plans, including Louisiana and certainly a lot of prisons, have been hesitant to treat people unless they're very, very sick. Uh, so they tend to wait till people get very sick with hepatitis, at which case people already have a lot of long-term damage to their liver to treat them because the treatment is so expensive. Uh, so in uh, th- this case now, the, there's a huge incentive to get everyone that's in Department of Corrections and in the Medicaid program who has hepatitis C treated in the next five years. So it's sort of like you, you flipped it, uh, you flipped uh, the situation upside down for most uh, Medicaid and uh, corrections programs there in Louisiana. And it really means that um, if they can successfully do this, that you will significantly improve the health of both prisoners as they're released back into the community, as well as Medicaid patients. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, so two things to, to say about that. One is the um, that I, I would imagine if this is a successful program, which of course I, ho- I hope it is, uh, I have a Ryan White Part F grant, the AETC, and so our, our, you know, one, of the, one of the things that I'm going to be doing is really helping to get the word out to other physicians and practitioners on how to treat hepatitis C. But if this program is successful, I, I hope that this is a program that may be modeled uh, by other states uh, as well, and that would be a really effective way for us to be able to make a serious dent in the hep C uh, epidemic that we're seeing in the U.S. Yes, I can tell you that I'm sure public health uh, providers from across the country are looking carefully at how successful you are in this model. Um, And you are in a good position to help because uh, we've known for years in the Ryan White HIV AIDS program, which provides uh, care and treatment for people living with HIV, where uh, for for many of, uh, for both hepatitis C and HIV among those patients, uh, the barrier is not always access to care. It's getting providers to getting patients tested, get, making sure people know that they're infected and that they should get treated, and then making sure that medical providers have the skills they need to treat these patients. Now, hepatitis C treatment is not very complicated, but it will be new for many primary care providers, and there aren't enough you know hepatitis specialists to treat everyone. So, every, all you know clinicians are going to have to come on board around learning how to treat hepatitis C to get this done. Um, so we need people like you out there training them. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the uh, issues that we're seeing now, and this is a good problem to have. I'm not. This is this is a good problem, but it's one of those things where holy smokes, now we have all the medicines we need. Now we just need to go to the rest of the state and, like you said, teach prescribers on how to use this. Unfortunately, I think that um, that there has been this thought amongst providers uh, when it was interferon and ribavirin that it was a very complicated disease uh, or treatment process. And, 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 and one of the things that we need to do is let folks know that those days are long, long gone and where we are with these uh, direct-acting uh, antiretrovirals or the so-called DAA. These medications are so good, and the success rates are unbelievable. They're upwards to 95 to 98%, which is really amazing. Right, and I think it's a little bit like when we were trying to really start treating HIV in Africa, where by taking this public health approach that you're taking in your state where you're using primarily one drug, it'll be a lot easier to teach people how to use that one drug, You know what they need to be looking for in patients, how they need to evaluate patients before they start treatment 
and how they evaluate when a patient's on treatment. But because you're, main, you're going to be using primarily one product, it'll be much more straightforward than trying to teach a clinician, you know, all the different all the different hepatitis medicines and how to use each one separately. So I'm hoping you'll have the kind of success that we had in Africa with the President's Emergency Plan or AIDS Relief, where we got, you know, millions of people on HIV treatment by keeping it simple. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, that's why they went with the drug that covers all of the uh, genotypes, which are, like I described to folks, are different flavors of, uh, of the virus. Before we, we hang up uh, uh, here, uh, uh, Dr. Laura Shiver, who's the Physician and Associate Administrator for the HIV AIDS Bureau of the Health Resources and Services Administration, I just want to just shift for a quick second and just talk about uh, HRSA's role in ending the HIV epidemic and, the plan, and the, a plan for America initiative. Yeah, so that's a really exciting plan. Uh, President Trump in the State of the Union announced that uh, there would be a 10-year initiative to, uh, to end the HIV epidemic in the United States by really initially focusing on uh, 48 counties where half of the new state, half of the new infections occurred, and some of those counties are in Louisiana, as well as uh, two big cities, D.C. and San Juan, and then seven states that have predominantly a rural focus. And near you, that's both Mississippi and Alabama are in that. So um, it's really a four-pronged approach of making sure we really improve testing so that about 15% of people that don't know they're, that they have HIV in this country, that are living with HIV, get tested, and that people that get into care and get on treatment in the Ryan HIV AIDS program, people that come into care do great, but and they have like 86% of them get very successfully treated. But we know that we have about 400,000 people in this country that are not in care so how do we do that? Like, what do we do in what do we do in uh, in New Orleans to find the people that know they have HIV infection but aren't in care for any number of reasons? Um, and then we're also going to focus on PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, uh, which is when uh, someone who is at high risk for HIV uh, but is does not is not infected takes a medicine every day to help prevent themselves from getting infected. So a huge breakthrough for people at risk of HIV. And then uh, and the fourth part of that program is going to be cluster detection, where we, uh, where the health department works on, on understanding when they're having an outbreak in their city so that they can quickly intervene in the outbreak. And we've had some very successful examples of that, where when you find people, are, there's a group of people who are transmitting HIV, that you get in there, you test all those people, you test the people that are friends of those people and their associates, and you test the associates, associates, and people that are HIV infected get into treatment, and people that are high risk but still negative get into PrEP, and you can help really prevent spread through that community. So those are the four parts. Um, you'll be, uh, at this point, uh, we need to see if Congress is going to be funding this in the fall because they're the people that control the purse strings in government. Um, at, and if they do, so far the House of Representatives has said they want to fund this. Uh, we'll start out with a relatively modest increase, of about $70 million for the Ryan White HIV AIDS program across those 50 counties in, in seven states. And then we'll increase it from there as we start having success. So um, it is doable. We have really very straightforward drugs to treat HIV today. Uh, we can, if we really need to improve our testing and getting for us those people that know they're infected but are not in care, how to get them into care. We need to change the way we're providing services to people because those people, the services we provided didn't work for them. So we need to really be rethinking how we provide services to those people who are no longer in care. 
Dr. Laura Cheever, who is a physician and associate administrator for the HIV AIDS Bureau at the Health Resources and Services Administration. Uh, thank you so much as somebody who has a Part A uh, as well as a Part F. Uh, me personally, I, I can't thank you enough for the work that you do that enables me to do the work that I do here in New Orleans. Thank you so much, and you're welcome back on WHIV at any time. Thank, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Th- thank you very kindly. All right, and so... <laughs> there you go, Kenny Francis. Uh, you just got so you just so we're going to have Dr. Rebecca Gee on in October. So that was a Very bit cool. that was a yeah. bit of a uh, uh, some insight as to uh, work. she's going to be on Movement Mondays. Oof, October twenty fourth, I think, is when that Movement Monday is going to be. I'm not going to guess on what the third Thursday in October is right now. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not, I'm not you're, gonna do that. you're not going to gander. Uh, no, you, I'm not going to guess because I have no <laughs> idea. Who knows where I'll be in October. Uh, hopefully here in New Orleans. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> like, October Dude, is so you're going like, to make me do resistance radio by ex- myself? October is like so ex- existentially. <laughs> who am I going to sit and argue with? Like, October is so existentially far away. Like, who knows where my hair is going to look like? Oh, like, I can guarantee you what it's going to be. It's gonna, <laughs> what? It's not going to grow it's, back? It's going to be October? non-existent. No, I'm going to do, I'm gonna do the, the, the LeBron plugs where like... Does LeBron have... Are you yeah. kidding me? No, yes. Really? Oh, really? I have yes. no idea. Really? You, like, just for fun, when you go home, and I know we're I know we're going on a huge tangent here, y'all, but just for fun, look, whip out your phone right now and look at a picture of LeBron from like 2011, 2012, and he's like very clearly like struggling on the struggle bus, just like oh. the rest of us are losing our hair, and he's like losing his hair, and he's like not giving it up, and then like he left Miami and went back to Cleveland around like 2014, and right. he like showed up the next season with like a full hair and like oh. hairline. It's like, bruh. God. I don't know who your doctor is, but it's working. Like it's it look like it looks like his real hair. Anyway, so Dr. Rebecca Gee is going to be on WHIV on. Uh, I'm just is, saying, maybe by October I'll be rich enough to have the real hair. All right, well, I I, I hope you do. Um, <laughs> and uh, we're going to hear more about the Hep C. I I, I will say before we get started uh, with the uh, with the, with uh, Resistance Radio, is that what Dr. Gee is really doing is something really amazing in which she's really providing the sort of care that I think Americans are long overdue, which is to be able to show up to your doctor's office, get a treatment for a disease that you have for free and get it cured without any of the hassles that we see. I have a question, though. How, how are we going to make money off of that, though? That sounds like a very not profitable. It is an incredibly not profitable. That, uh, I'm, but, not, I'm so, not interested in so, that. So, but Gilead made money. So, I right? think it's they, really Gilead, funny that they're Gilead. called Gilead. Just, you know. Well, I think it was called. I'm sure uh, it was called before. No, because no. the book was written. The book was from like the 80s, right? I just think, yeah. Is, I haven't read the book. Is it called Gilead in the book? Yeah. Is oh, yeah. Handmaid's Tale is actually pretty. It's like pretty like I've on. Like the show is like pretty that. like the first season, and then the second. season. I actually haven't seen the second season because I live in America. <laughs> second season is like the U.S. Congress and like Alabama. <laughs> right, repressive? Huh? Repressive? No, the second season of Handmaid's Tale. I'm watching oh, yeah. it on the news oh, every watching, day oh, when yeah, I like yeah, 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 open yeah, my yeah, phone. Yeah, 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 I'm watching yeah, the second yeah, season yeah, of The Handmaid's yeah, yeah. Tale. It's like, yeah, it's That's why I, I stopped watching. We're gonna have Amy Irving on next week. Uh, she wanted to take the day off today, yeah. thankfully, because Amy Irving, who's executive director of the Women's Abortion Fund, yeah, you guys have probably seen Amy all over the news. I will say for I will say for now just on two things because I know we couldn't get Amy today because again she's taking an absurdly well absurdly deserved well deserved wait a day off um two things one there is some good news there's a i'm not sure if you heard about this yet because there was news that was breaking this morning a federal judge in mississippi um struck down the mississippi version of the heartbeat 
abortion law. Yeah, but that's, I mean, tell me how that's good news. I mean, that's just part, that's the plan. I mean, they know it's going to be struck no, I down. Know. I know. It's, it's, so like, like it's all that is, it's just, this. I, I, I'm at, I'm at a place where it's like, we have to like do be happy when people do their jobs. Right. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, I, I will say so this. so many people that are supposed to be protecting our democracy that don't do it. Right. That when someone who actually like functions the way that it should function, I'm like, oh, look at you. Amy, so Amy sent me a text, uh, and so I just want to read this. Uh, she said that um, the six-week ban is being heard in the full house tomorrow. So just FYI, the the six-week ban, six-week ban on uh, on abortions is going to be heard uh, by the full house of Louisiana uh, tomorrow. And so we need to be supporting people like Amy Irving and, and the New Orleans Abortion Fund and Lyft and Planned Parenthood for the amazing work that they've been doing. Uh, and again, we're going to have Amy on next week to talk to us about the amazing work and the uh, activism that they've been doing. In the interim, if you're tuned in, you are listening to 22.3 WHIV LPFM. This is Resistance. Radio. We are streaming live on 1230 AM WBOK. We just heard from uh, Dr. Laura Cheever, who is uh, basically runs HRSA, which for me is a thrill to be able to have her on air. Uh, and as you guys heard, I actually have several uh, I have several grants that uh, that I use to run my HIV clinics uh, through uh, through them. And so those are very important grants that exist for people living with HIV. Uh, we are going to get started for the rest of our show. Uh, Kenny? Uh, just one more thing on reproductive health. Um, a thing you can do right now, which I'm sure if Amy was here, she would, be, she would be saying this, is you could, while you're online shopping for Memorial Day and taking advantage of the great deals, you can also go to the New Orleans Abortion Fund's website and Planned Parenthood website and sign up for monthly recurring donations. You can you can, <laughs> you can do that. Yes. Um, and you can help with this fight. It's... Like, it's we should important. all be angry. We should all be angry. We should all be scared. And, like, I think in, I think in moments like this... Um, there's like this like rush of like people feel like they have to like try to do something. And I want to make sure I say this the right way. It's just like, like the, the attention matters. Right. But like there is always, always people who have been doing this work and who like live and breathe this and have been, and I'm not saying that like more people shouldn't join. I'm saying that if like the most effective thing you do right now is give the Amy Irvins of the world, every dime of your like dollars that you can spare and all of your time and energy for the things that they know like will be effective. Cause like people have like her have been fighting this fight for a long time for years. And they're going to continue to fight this fight and like time, you know, work smarter, not harder. Like we don't need to reinvent the wheel with a thousand new like grassroots groups to try to do this. It's like, there are people who do this work, support them, support, support them, them in the ways that they've never been supported of. And that's how we got to this point. Because like people haven't been paying attention to this, and Amy also has a show here on WHIV on Thursdays from two to four called uh, High Frequency. I just I pro, pro Frequency. I'm so sorry, Amy. I'm so sorry. It's called Pro Frequency. I went into that sentence without figuring that last part out. <laughs> I was like, oh, it'll I come think we to just me. saw like a facsimile of your life. <laughs> I went into that sentence without figuring it out Mark Allen. That's the Mark <laughs> Allen story. That's the title of your autobiography. Uh, guilty as charged. All right, Kenny, go ahead and leave um, the show. <laughs> so our guest, t- our other guest of today um, is a voice that you will, if you've been listening to the show, you'll probably recognize because she's been on the show for a different thing. Um, Lydia is a, a jack of all trades and does a lot of things. A dear friend of mine, Lydia Winkler, um, who was last on our show talking about um, fair housing um, and a company she, that she founded called, um, now I'm blanking on the name, <laughs> Rent Check. I'm Mark Allen. Rent Check. Um, but what we're talking about today... Is we're talking about Reap Now. So Reap Now, I'm going to read a brief thing about uh, that was that I found. So Reap Now's vision is a world with a fair chance of life after prison. Currently in Louisiana, those currently incarcerated are afforded no assistance at all. 
in the parole process when it's time to, if you even get there. In a state like California, to juxtapose, on the other hand, parole representation is a right. Shocking. Louisiana is like on the opposite end of something that we should be doing. Um, in Louisiana, the, the lack of counsel through the parole process results in unfair outcomes for those caught in the system of incarceration. Um, at, so what REAP now tries to do is they provide – they believe that the right to representation for, for parole hearings is a right, and that's why they're organizing to provide that parole support. And so they offer advocacy and representation to um, folks in the, in the criminal justice system for free of charge to them to help them through this process that – can you imagine, like, you're, like, a 17-year-old that gets, like, convicted for, I don't know, a joint. stealing a car. Stealing, right? stealing a car. Things, right. things that 17-year-olds do. You steal right. a car, you went right. on a joyride. Because you're, like, black and a 17-year-old kid, you get, like, five years in prison. You get tried as an adult in a prison, and then you get to, like, the parole process, and you, like, never finish high school. You've been in jail for, like, five years, so now you're, like, 22 Turning twenty three, no skills. No, like you, you didn't teach you anything or help right. you with anything while you were there. You were doing hard labor, and then now you have to go to this like parole process that like it's not even really explained to you, and you're not even guaranteed representation while you go through the process. What? And then right. we wonder why like recidivism rates look like the, like they do. Right. Again, we talk about this a lot on on, uh, on resistance radio, but that's not the bug of this. That's it's that's the a feature. Yeah. Right. That's the design of the system. And so with that, I'd love to introduce my dear friend Lydia Winkler, who's here to talk to us about Reef Now and the work that they're doing to make sure that folks have representation. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Kenny. Um, so Reef stands for Relief Effort for Earning Parole, and what we are is a network of lawyers and advocates who donate our time to represent and help support people that go before the parole board because you're not guaranteed representation when you go before the parole board. Sorry to interrupt. So that whole like right to counsel thing ends after you're convicted. Yeah. They don't see this is post conviction and Louisiana state legislator doesn't recognize parole as an actual tribunal. What? So yeah, yeah. What? Explain. Yeah, that that's a little lawyer talk, but I understand what you're trying to say. So maybe kind of break that down a little bit. Absolutely. Um, so the parole board is made up of people that are nominated by the governor to okay. serve on the parole board. They get paid to be on the parole board. They are not lawyers. Most of them. They have no experience with the criminal justice system. Some of them might even be a physical therapist, but they serve on the parole board and have a lot of power, and they decide who gets granted parole and who doesn't. And you need to have... And I'm sure the parole board is full of people of color who went through the criminal justice system and like understand the things that these people are facing, right? Oh, you're funny today, Kenny. <laughs> oh, no, he's not. <laughs> um, sadly, no. Um, so, so going before the parole board without having representation or an advocate there, you're at a severe disadvantage. Yeah. Um, and so what we do is prepare people for their hearings. Well, so can I ask you, I'm, I'm so sorry to interrupt. So what would it be like for like this seven, this fictional 17-year-old who stole a car, got five years, and then is now like getting... You're about to go through the... Like, what's, go through, what's the process? Yeah, what's without, the process? Yeah, how does it work now that you that, that is the context of the, the... Or what's the hole that you guys are solving? What's the problem that you guys are solving? So we're, we're ensuring that he has a the best chance possible at being prepared. So that means having a family member or a friend there to advocate on that person's behalf, saying if granted parole, they are going to be supported. 
having a mm. housing plan in place, an employment plan in place, mm. an education plan. Does this person have their GED? If they don't, do they have a way of procuring it out of prison? If they already have their GED, are they willing to enroll in college classes? Anything possible to bolster their application so they're going to be the best citizen in the parole board's eyes if granted parole. So in that big famous com article that came out like seven years ago or f- six years ago about the the issue of incarceration, I think they won a, it's not a Pulitzer Prize, but like a, a Polk. Was it a Pulitzer? Yeah. yeah. One of the things that they showed was that we, why one of the reasons why we have some of the highest rates of incarceration in the world at that time, the, the highest rate, was that, that, the, uh, that there was that per- getting parole was very, very difficult and has been made more and more difficult over time. That's one of the reasons why we have more and more people in jail is because they're not getting out on parole. Mm-hmm. It, I'm assuming that was also done somewhat intentionally so that we can continue to, you know, that's not a bug in the system. That That's the feature of the system. So are you guys somewhat disrupting that process then? We're trying to. I mean, also... In 2018, Louisiana spent $730 million on mass incarcerating adults. Wait, say that again? $730 million on mass incarcerating adults. When you think about it, I would like to to point out. BP paid for all of that. I also like to point out, like, very, very briefly, like, the, like, juxtaposition of that is, like, we spent almost a billion dollars, like, you know, round up there. Right. There are over 500. So, so round up. So hold on. We spent, hold on. Let me finish. We, we, we spent almost a billion dollars on mass incarceration. Meanwhile, um, advocates statewide came up with a number that to say that in order to provide the type of like early childhood care that would help stop things like mass incarceration and the, and the, the, the social determinants of health and that lead to crime, et cetera, and poverty. Their advocates were saying we need around like eighty million dollars to bolster the system, but they knew we weren't going to get eighty from the um, from the legislature. So they asked for forty. Do you know how much the legislature like allocated them? Four, four million, I and then <laughs> and then the and then the the governor found air quotes found like another eight, but it's like. Twelve. Right. We got twelve million dollars for the kids. Hold on. So, but like seven hundred. What was the number? Seven thirty. Seven hundred. Seven hundred. So, right, so let me give you another another way to contextualize that. So we have the highest rates of HIV in this city, right? And we barely scrape by. We barely scrape by on seven million dollars. Seven. Seven. Singular for people living with HIV here in New Orleans. We have the highest rates of HIV. So my grants that I apply for. That comes from that seven million dollars that pays people that 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 keeps my clinic open. It brings people in. The it gives city. them the medication. So se- just to kind of offset it, seven million dollars for the whole city. So, so to be clear, so for like HIV and early childhood, we're spending less than twenty million. Right. But yes, we got yes. So we have seven hundred and thirty million dollars for incarceration. Which, by the way, I, I know, I'm sorry, lady. I know we're getting super sidetracked. Which, by the yeah, way, it's like not radio. even like. It's not even like we're spending it well, right? No, For like $730 million, I would expect every single prison to like be like re- as nice as a prison can be and have like a suite full of therapists and psychologists <laughs> and like every single support that folks – like for $730 million – we should basically 
our, our prison should basically be like in-service therapy, like addiction treatment centers of the best kind. Yeah, and to you- that point, so we're spending $50 a day per inmate at Louisiana State Penitentiary, which is about $20,000 per year. So we're effectively spending the cost of college tuition for every adult that's mass incarcerated. But we're not yielding any economic benefits of having college kids return to our cities and strengthen our economy. And so we're we not giving could them- just send them to college. We sh- like, I'm saying we should. I think was, yeah, we, I'm saying we, we could should, just literally send them. We to should co- send people to college and not to prison. But but you but I think what we're failing to see is that part of the white patriarchy is that you know failing up seems to always be part of uh, of of a system like that in which, of course, giving people the power of education, but that's going to be a uh, uh, you we're going to be empowering people that otherwise uh, the uh, Louisiana state does not want to empower uh, for for obvious reasons if you're tuned in you're listening to 102.3 WHIV LP this is resistance radio my name is Mark Allendary that's Kenny Francis we have Miss Lydia on to talk to us about reap I just also want to say how amazingly impressive Lydia was on a couple weeks ago to talk about a whole different app yeah. that she's yeah. got and I just want to plug that app again it's called Renchek Rent check. Rent check. Which I just used. Which yes. is an amazing uh, app. Kenny's very proud that he just used it. Basically, <laughs> this is this gives you an opportunity to go and document your uh, your apartment before you move in. You can document what your apartment is after you move out. And so this way, if your la- not if when your landlord tries to f with you with respect to not giving your security deposit back, you have documentation. And it was go back and please listen to that episode. I am just so deeply impressed that here you are with a whole different program. So please continue talking about REAPs. So we, we cut you off at $730 million. Uh, um, <laughs> sure. So an, another big problem we have in Louisiana is that our, our prisons resemble less of college-age people and instead old-age homes. We yeah. have one of the oldest prison populations oh, in the world. For so long. Yeah, because Angola, I mean, we've been yeah. putting lifers. It's yeah. unbelievable. And so a third of our prison population are over 45 years old. It's a huge number. And 21% of them have already served 10 years, yeah, which is just, a lot. Oh, Jesus. And, and, and the statistics show that you age out of crimes in your early 20s. And so if prisons mm-hmm. are designed to keep people safe, then we're not effectively doing that. Again, air quotes. Yes. Right. And, and also what we're also, I'm assuming, and this is an assumption, please correct me, that by aging out of crimes, is that, that probably doesn't include violent crime or that's just more nonviolent crime Both. oriented? Both. Okay. But also I mean, majority really, majority of because the I prisoners in Louisiana are serving nonviolent, non-violent crimes. Also, right. like who's really shooting people at like 40? No, 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 no. no. I'm thinking <laughs> like, like violent crimes associated with mental health disorders. No, I know. I know okay. But to my point though, still, like how many stories do you actually hear of people like committing violent crimes in like their 40s? Like that happens when you're like young and angry and Or if you're wearing a MAGA hat. Yeah, but even still, like prevalence, like the prevalence right. of these things is like so small, right. which is like, I think our whole system, obviously, again, we, we spoke, we speak about this like all the time. It's not a bug of the system. It's a design of system. But like the sort of like straw man argument is that it's, it's about public safety. It's about keeping people safe and like keeping a like, um, you know, a society that is civil. Right. But like they're talking about like the prevalence of these things is so small compared to like what people are actually going to jail for. Like the number of people that actually just like went on like a murder spree and ended up in Angola versus the like black dude with a joint in like 1975 that, that's 
Like that's what we're like. That's that's what those we're are my clients. Are. Right. Yeah. The dude with the joint in 1975 are the people I'm working with. Yeah. I'm literally yeah. working with grandfathers that right. have been separated from their families for decades, and that's our whole ethos. Is we want to reunite families, especially in New Orleans, who have been separated for decades. If you go to my website, our website reap r e e p now dot org, you'll see on our cover page a man named Tyron Ash who lives here in New Orleans. He was serving over 40 years as a nonviolent drug offender. <laughs> For drugs, nonviolent forty years and for he, nonviolent and crime. he was granted parole um, last year. He was granted parole last year and got it. But he got in, listen to this story. It's a crazy story. His name's Tyron Ash. He got engaged right before he went to prison. After prison, he got married to the same woman. Oh. They stayed oh together goodness. for oh, wow. over twenty years, and they live together now. And but like that's what we do is reunite families, and yeah. we're tearing people apart. And there's no benefit to society. It's the Only detriments. Only detriments. It's the design. So how? So I would imagine that the establishment probably does not like you being around because you're actually getting people paroled. So how do you find folks? Do, are, are they referred to you, or how does that process work? Now it's all referrals. So, and it's funny because most of them are all. I mean, it's. I mean, not funny, but. They all watch Saints games together. So that's when I get people like, oh, I was watching a Saints game with so-and-so that you helped X time. Can you help me as well? And, and, and that's sort of how it all comes together. So do they reach out to you while they're in prison and they're mm-hmm. saying, I have a parole hearing in six months. Can you help me out? That and then people that I've helped that are out of prison call me and say, can you help my friend? And that's, that's how I get people. Can we go back for a second to the process? Because I think part of why I wanted you to come back on is like when we were talking about um, – pre-trial bail hearings and reform with um, what councilman Jason Williams and like learning about that world and how screwed up that is. So just like on the flip side of this, like, so now we're like at the other end of the system, right? Like we all, I think feel like everyone knows just how bad it is once people are in jail. But I think these like processes that like put you in and then when you're coming out are the ones that we're like less educated on. So like literally without like people like you, the kid that this like hypothetic kid we've been talking about just like, Goes in front of this like military tribunal style thing of like people that are definitely not their peers. That like I'm gonna I'm gonna take a wild don't look, guess. Don't look like that. I'm gonna take a wild guess that it's not their peers that's like sitting in front of them, and then they have to like basically alone explain how they've been quote unquote rehabilitated and why they should be allowed to like go back to wherever they came from and be like, no, I don't have a job. No, I don't have. Housing. I couldn't get my mom couldn't take off work to come talk for me, so I'm kind of rolling solo in this. Uh, please let me go. That's basically what happens. Yep. Jesus. And uh, is there is there uh, like a number of like how many people actually get parole? Like, is there like a data I was, on that? Ch- I actually, I was, can, let me let me ask a question. Sorry. I was going to ask. That's okay. So, is there a uh, a rate of success that you guys can talk about, or like how? I don't mean to put you on the spot. Yeah. Uh, so. I'm, so I, in 2017, I went to pretty much every parole hearing at Louisiana State Penitentiary um, and advocated for someone each month. Um, and I have yet to have a client recidivate, which is a, a win. Well but done. It, well done, Lydia. But it will, it will happen. Of course. The statistics it, state yeah, it, that it's it going to It will happen, and we need, we need to be prepared for when we have other REAP clients that recidivate and how we handle that and what systems we can have in place to prevent that, whether it's in counseling obviously staying in touch but other programs we try and partner with um other organizations in new orleans uh to keep people together um and stay on the right track uh but in terms of parole it's tough to say 
whether you, what your chances are, whether you have representation or not. I can say that um, it was ex- it was stark when I started doing this work to see how many people went before the parole board without an attorney, and I, I just couldn't believe it. And yeah, like, that's <laughs> wow. When you told me about this, I was like, wait, they don't have to have one. Like, uh, and that's part like that, of that was my that, first. That, that was my that, first that thought. keeps them back, right? My first, my, my first thought when like right. when you talking about reap, I was like, wait. I mean, I'm, that's great that you're doing that, but wait, don't they have to have one? And she's like, no, they they don't. Like, what do you mean they don't have to have one? You just throw what? I, I, again, to me, I, I take the cynical like yeah, that's no, that's the feature yeah. of the system because that keeps the, that keeps jails. Uh, remember, like sheriffs get paid. Yeah. And for every day that there's somebody in jail, they actually get paid. And, and actually, the, the the money that they get, and I'm assuming that's part of the $730 million that gets spent, that the Louisiana state pays to the local jails, uh, that actually covers a significant part of their operating budgets. Mm-hmm. And so it's real important for them to keep as many bodies uh, and, and beds filled. And it's horrible to talk about it like this. But that's I, I was at a conference just a couple weeks ago, and, and I, we were hearing from the, the, the nurse who runs uh, the programs uh, in the in the facilities in the in the carceral system? And she was just very matter of fact, just very openly, just talking about, you know, yeah, well, of course, uh, prisoners are moved around and uh, it makes the care complicated, but the the beds need to be filled because that's how these budgets get yeah. get filled. And it's just yeah. it's it's something that if more people knew about it, uh, you know, I, I think that there would be. It reminds a, me of that. Um, there was that sheriff from somewhere in North Louisiana. <laughs> Who when 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 John that when Jabba Edwards was doing the um the criminal justice reforms and he was like whoa 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 we're gonna let them out <laughs> gonna let the good ones like, who's go? gonna, who's gonna, who's gonna do all the things that we like trust the good ones to do and I was like oh my god where do you begin yeah. where do you even begin I do with have that? this so in in two that and this is an old study so take it with a grain of salt but in 2011 your chances of winning per, being granted parole were just in the low 20 percent 20 percent. So as it is, we're setting people up yeah. to fail, which is by design. Yeah. Um, but I think we need to change the stigma around representation, and we need to put it on us, on attorneys, on advocates, to donate our time to represent people that are up for parole until we can push and enact legislation where it's mandated. What do you mean about the stigma of, of representation? Explain that more. I don't think anyone in this country should go before the parole board without an advocate. Absolutely. And so we need to, people like myself who are privileged and educated need to donate their time to do it and encourage others to do it as well because we can. But ultimately, I want REAP to be out of business and not exist because Mm -hmm. you are guaranteed an attorney when you go before the parole board, mandated by the state. Is that something that like, do other states do that? or California does that. So is there is that a bill? Is this something that you're going to some of the more friendlier uh, state reps or senators that could help pull a bill together for something like this? I mean, we're a long, long way away. Okay, but that's I something mean, that's our a public plan, defenders that's a plan. are already so overwhelmed. Yeah, that's, that's what my first thought was like. <laughs> who's going to represent them? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess that's a good point. I mean, couldn't there be a like uh, you know that would be a paid part of that seven hundred thirty million dollars would be a paid position exactly where it's somebody that would you know kind of yeah, half mean, case manager half you could put attorney. the bill you could you, I mean that bill would have to come with one that would a funded the public defender's office through not tickets and fines you know just actually fund it right. so that those lawyers can actually do their jobs and help people right start there right. <laughs> 
There's a great documentary called Gideon's Army mm-hmm. about yeah. a, uh, I think it was a public defender's office in Alabama or Mississippi, I forget which. Gideon's Army. Go and check it out. It's a great, great. Uh, and also at FNO at the Public Health Film Festival of New Orleans, uh, we broadcast it or we uh, premiered a film by John Ritchie called uh, Katie and the Black Robin Hood, which is about how yeah. the public defender's office is now starting to uh, film uh, their uh, their clients as um, a kind of origin story, if you will, uh, to show the structural uh, poverty and violence that had they had generational violence that they had grown up in uh, to help at the sentencing phase, and so that's really innovative. And what I, what I particularly loved about that movie was like similar to what you're talking about about advocating for the person is that like on the sort of the flip side of this, what they were doing was creating these movies, these like short films about the folks that was about to go through sentencing, so that. The judge isn't just looking like at an inmate in you know in chains who's like reading off a thing of their crime, their supposed crimes. What they're doing is hearing about this person and like what they've been through and like how they got there and how like we as a society has like failed this person. Which that's how I'm very confident that all the three of us sitting in this room think about jail and prison. Is that, is that like every single person that goes to jail, for, no matter what they've done, that's someone that we failed as a society. Yes, yes, someone that we did not support in the way that they did, and it's. It's unfortunate to say the least that that is like the opposite point of the way that we view folks that have end up inside of the criminal justice system. Um, but I think it's a very important work that those folks are doing and that and that you're doing. Um, Hey, so can I just bring up a quick point? Just yeah. to what I think it's really important. It's a point that to underscore that AOC's chief of staff. Did you hear about this? Changed his Twitter handle to "Every billionaire represents policy failure." Yeah, and and I think that to a large degree, and he got a lot of blowback for that, I'm sure he did. <laughs> <laughs> but did not. I'm sure but he did. but it, it it it. I think your point is so incredibly important, Kenny. In that, for every person that's incarcerated is, and I think that the did the judge say that or that that the judge said it. The judge said it, it right? Like, judge Calvin Johnson said that every person. Uh, no, 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 no. Judge, it was um, a judge from the movie. From the movie, uh, Judge Donahue yeah. um, said that every person that is incarcerated it represents a system failure, yeah. and and again, I don't think it's a system failure. I think it actually represents a system success. I think it's a system failure from our perspective, conscientious uh, people who care actually about other individuals versus the state system, which is to incarcerate and control, especially communities that are poor, especially communities that are poor and communities of color. So with that, this is 102.3 WHIV. That's Kenny Francis. I'm Mark Allen. Can you talk to us a bit about some of the bills that are that have gone through or some of the interesting you know kind of some of some of the drama that's been happening and kind of give us some of the legal bills that have gone through and what looks like maybe successful or what's really regressive that may be successful absolutely so in june 2017 governor john bell edwards signed 10 crime bills in enacted 10 crime bills which is great and some of them are parole based which was a win for reap now such as but like i said i mean it's a win, but other states have been doing this for decades, and we are. But it's Louisiana, you know. We're only fifty years behind. But here's just times. here's just one example. So they signed medical furlough, which is if essentially you're dying in prison, you oh, can right, be released. Right, right, right. And I mean, and I said how it costs fifty dollars a day per inmate. That's for Those healthy inmate, people. Yeah, that's for healthy people. So imagine. Also, they're not getting the proper medical care that they need, which I think is a violation of the Constitution. That's a whole other topic. I can come back for that. Please, um, yeah, <laughs> we'd love to have you. <laughs> um, so that that is a good thing in terms of medical furlough, and there are things for reduced time, um, but it still is too little. Like it's not enough. And although we can say call it a victory, I think that would not be doing us justice. Yeah. Um, 
and the people that are wrongly incarcerated justice. I mean, you're saying you're not calling 50, going from 50 to 49, just the... To, what's the word that Trump used? Total and complete exoneration like of our system? <laughs> oh, wait, I thought you were saying extremely stable genius. <laughs> that too. That too. I mean, the, the statistics are still astronomical. So we incarcerate six times the rate of the country of Iran. We incarcerate oh, more people God, than so Russia, terrible. Iran, and China combined yeah, it's, it's, in the state of Louisiana. We incarcerate in one just per- Louisiana. In just Louisiana. We incarcerate 1% of our entire population. Yeah, it's it's oh it's unbelievable, God. and also just because speak- I know half of these numbers, but they still don't they still hit just as hard, right? Every single time. So, what we're the best at when you want to say like what we're the best at the what Louisiana is the best at is mass incarceration, and that is not something to ever be proud of. No, and no, no, and and also just to be clear too, and, and I and I and I may have counting this name wrong, but it was Herman Wallace was one of the three in the Angola three, and I think he had he would have probably been th- that this would that this medical furlough would have been probably successful or would have helped him of course Herman Wallace was part of the Angola three and was just continually being re um, I don't want to say reincarcerated but he, despite judges saying that the state needed to uh, to free him the attorney general still went and tried to keep incarcerated. I think he had hepatitis C. He was dying of hepatocellular carcinoma. And uh, Mr. Wallace, I think, actually was released the day before he actually passed, if, if I have that correct, which is yeah. really, which is very heartbreaking. So that's the medical furlough uh, act. And, and that's the story of Herman Wallace. Please look up Angola 3 um, uh, story. It's really a very moving story. Horrifying is what but it I is. Think, yes. I think what, what we yes. can do to help help the problem is we need to change the stigma stigma of incarceration and employ employ people that are yes. going to be eligible yes. for parole and and donate to community service that do that one of which which is one of our partners is the first 72 plus they provide resources for the first 72 hours and then some for when people are released from jail um and they also advocate for people that are up for parole as well um they're located right on broad street in a yellow house if you want to visit them um, but from there to Innocence Project, to REAP, like we need to provide resources to help others that are going to be eligible for parole and their families. And another thing of what we do is prepare families for the parole hearing because most people don't know what a parole hearing is like. You do, if you go before the parole board, you can have an attorney there with you that sits next to you. You can also have a family member or a friend speak on your behalf. We help you craft what you're going to say and how best to prepare that family member and craft your story around that. And so if you need help or you know someone who's going before the parole board, please reach out to us. This is what we do, um, and we'd love to help you. And where can they find you? Reapnow.org, R-E-E-P now.org. Thank you so much, Leah. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you uh, so much. It was really such a pleasure. Um, and now uh, we have a free 10 minutes, which is... Well, so I wanted to start talk about two things specifically. Um, one... Just basically your update on what's happening with city council. So we've got. Yeah, I guess there's been a couple. (laughs) There has been some news. Let's let's start with like an activism update, sort of in general, um, because it's actually um, it's actually related to what Lydia was just talking about. It's still still on criminal justice. So this coming Wednesday, that's Wednesday, May 29th, um, at 1 p.m. in the city council chambers, there's going to be a hearing about the quote unquote epidemic of juvenile crime going on in New Orleans, or. If you've somehow been under a rock, there has been a rash of crimes, specifically out in the east. Um, and the kid, the kids, these are children. They're like ten between like ten and fourteen. That's doing it. And 
I mean, frankly, it is like our lack of infrastructure around providing children with opportunities coming home to roost that like young children without opportunities and without their needs being met and without supervision and without all the things that like made it possible for people like the three of us in this room to grow up and like survive and thrive that they don't have. We know what that leads to. It leads to petty crime that grows and grows and grows and grows and ends up in place and, and ends up, you know, in the 17 year old going to Angola and then coming out without any representation for parole. Um, there's a hearing happening at city council this Wednesday, uh, one that I and a lot of other conscientious citizens are very concerned about because our DA, who's a clown, Ken Azaro, has basically said, well, you know, in the past we tried just like locking them all up and becoming more and more, um, you know, a, a much more like lock them up strategy and it didn't work. So what we're going to do is we're going to lock more of them up. He has very publicly come out with a plan that basically says, I'm going to just incarcerate as many of these kids as possible, and that's how we're going to stop this, which we all know doesn't work. It simply doesn't work. And this is, I think that this is counter zero starting the, the thing of like, you know, I'm the only one that's willing to be tough on crime. Like this, he's starting his, this is his, his, he's starting campaign. his reelection campaign. Right. He's, he's going to, he's going to start saying that like the mayor and a certain city council member that's planning on running against me and all these people are, see, see it all this like hippy dippy, like easy on crime stuff. When you, when you take your foot off the gas, here's what happens. That's basically the narrative he's starting to build to like whatever like conservative base he thinks he has in the city where I'm the one that's tough on crime. I'm the one that's willing to do things that, that like people, other people are scared of or they're feeling, you know, it's politically correct to do, to, to, I mean, to do. it's the same arguments that we heard in New York when, uh, that you started to see an uptick in crime. They're like, well, we have to do more stop and frisk. It's and the, the same. Whole, the whole reason for stop and frisk, the whole reason why we're seeing more crime is we need to be stopping more people and frisking more people. I'm going to, I'm going to upset a lot of my fellow liberal friends when I say this. It's the same argument that your boy Joe Biden loved to use a lot. A lot. Which one? When he wrote the, the Crime the Act, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, when he wrote it and advocated the, for it for like worst. ten yeah, years, you can jump in. You're, you're, I'm, I'm going to take Joe Biden is the godfather of mass incarceration. Yeah, yeah. When yeah, he yeah, signed yeah. the 1994 yeah, Crime and he Bill. was proud of it like, too, gonna, and like, he still is proud he, of yeah, it. And he talks about predators, and he talks. I'm going to take twenty seconds here to ruin Joe Biden for everyone. Good. Joe Biden. Joe Biden's the he's worst. He's already been ruined. Like you don't need to convince me, Kenny. Joe Biden's the worst. The worst candidate we have on that on the on the left side of the spectrum, and for we could talk about a lot of things, but simply because he is the author and the chief champion of the Crime Act, and everything we're talking about. All of the mass incarceration that's happened since the like, since the late, the early nineties is Joe Biden's fault, right? And he still he still is proud of and it. And it's not like he's also, out here. Let's remember he's also a plagiarizer and cheated his way through law school and was on academic leave because he plagiarized five pages of his appellate brief and then pa- plagiarized again when he ran for president in the nineteen eighties. So he's just a liar, a cheater, and a piece. And of we didn't even get to the need of and yeah, and a misogynist, right? And a close talker. Yeah. <laughs> he's everyone's favorite. Like, um, he's never favored assaulting grandpa. All right, Kenny, Kenny, let me ask you this. What's, what's going to happen at this, uh, oh, so this hearing they're talking, so they're talking about what approach we need to take and like what, like what's on the table. A lot of things. That's why, like, I think that this is an opportunity for folks to go and be involved in the process. Um, I would say that I think our city council has a pretty large motivation to, to not just listen to Ken Azara and think that what he's doing is best. And let's just call it what it is. Council President Jason Williams is going to run against Ken Azar next year. Everyone knows that. 
this, that I highly doubt that the recommendations coming out of council are going to be in line with Kana's era, but like this is a moment where as a city, we cannot allow this to happen. Can we you- just got the pay ordinance. We just started making some steps forward in this. Right. We cannot allow Kana's era to just be like, we're this, just going to lock up a bunch of is kids. Is this an argument for early education? Everything's an argument for early education. I, I know, like, but literally in, in, every societal I ill. I understand that, but in, in light of what we're talking about right now, yeah. I mean, this is absolutely. A, I mean, would early education be something they would put on the table? I mean, it would make sense that it would be because we are seeing a rash of carjackings, of shootings, and and what I have mean, what you. We, what we need is kids to have options and to have supports to be able to like survive and thrive. And so, like, something I would love the city council to do is a jobs program. Besides like t- the military. <laughs> is n- not the military. No, right. like, a, like a city jobs program. Like put kids to work with jobs During that like actually pay. And, yes, yes. And that, oh, I mean, who knows? They could even be pathways to real careers when they graduate. <laughs> that would be crazy. Uh, if empower- that. Empowering people, dude, that's not, that's not what our system's about, man. It's disempowering. But So this hearing is happening. That's Wednesday the 29th at 1 p.m. Where if you care about at the, at the, city and city council chambers, so okay, not, not, not across, not across the no. river, thirteen hundred Padilla Street. So if you if you care about juvenile justice, if you care about anything that we're we're just talking we're just talking about, and you have time, please show up and make your voice heard, and let's drown out Kenazaro. Like we cannot allow him to like be the the person that moves us forward. The other thing I want to like really quickly get to before we run out, completely out of time is the city council a couple of weeks ago now they approved um, the short term rental ordinance. Um, there's a bunch of pieces of it that are not, there's a lot of pieces that aren't decided yet, but I'm just going to give you all the basics of like what happened and what still needs to happen. And then we can get into the nitty gritty when things are actually done because it's not done. Because also just to be clear, there was also an element with the state, the, with some of the fair share actually has a huge part to do with this. So all of that I'm going to tell you right now is not decided like fines and fees and taxes, all that stuff is still not decided and has to be decided. Maps got to be drawn. All that has to happen. So what has been decided is this. There are now four types of licensees. There is one that is a um, simply just a residential license. So to have a residential license, you need a homestead exemption to prove that you live on site. And in an owner-occupied residential property, you can have as many as three short-term rental units in addition to the owner-occupied dwelling. So let's say you own a... Um, Let's say you own a, a house with like four different apartments in it. You, three of them can be short-term rentals as long as you live in the fourth one and you have this license. The second type of license that we now have is a commercial. Um, and there are different versions of the commercial one. So, And the commercial one is, remember, you don't have to live there. The, the, there's one that's just for a single unit. So that's like so, the, so, the, so, the so-called like mom and pop thing where you're just like a person who owns a house and you bought another house and you just want to use it for Airbnb. You can get that. You get one unit. There's another permit that, uh, and that would actually require a homestead exemption, the, sing- the single unit commercial, commercial one. There's small scale, which is you have fewer than five un- units. There's large scale, which you have type one, which you have f- between five and 49 units. And then for the Saunders of the world, there's the large scale type two, where you have 50 or more units. And then I think the idea is that as we figure out the rest of the regulations, we're going to add different restrictions and incentives to each of those. You can imagine the like large scale type twos are going to be the people that they're trying to get to pay for affordable housing, um, not so much the, the, you know, the single unit owning mom and pop person with the homestead exemption. Another thing that is important to note is that a, a recommendation to, to ban short-term rentals in the Marini Tremaine Bywater did fail. It, didn't, it wasn't included, but they did uphold the ban in the French Quarter in the Garden District. 
Um, and then, like I said, there's still gonna, lots of considerations happening about what the fee structure is going to be, what the taxes are going to be. Um, there's a lot to be to be forgotten this still, so please keep paying attention. All right. Uh, as we wrap up, I want to play this for you, Kenny. Uh, I, is I've it got, the song I sent you? No, oh, did you, yeah, no. I, I sent you one. That's no. They, it, so this is Stephen Prater. Oh, yeah. We can go sheriff of, yeah. No, no, no. But this is going to be 30 seconds. He's the sheriff of Cato Parish. I just want everybody to hear it, so I'm going to turn us off, and I'm going to let him say what he has to say. They are a necessary evil to keep the doors open that we keep a few or keep some out there. And that's the ones that you can work. That's the ones that can pick up trash, the work relief programs. But guess what? Those are the ones that they're releasing. In addition to the, in addition to the bad ones, and I call these bad, in addition to them, they're releasing some good ones that we use every day to, to wash cars, to change oil in our cars, to cook in the kitchen, to do all that where we save money. Well, they're going to let them out. Shot down there, the cocaine guns jammed downtown. Killing clowns of blood money men, shooting 